Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin, and I'm here today joined by Kaz Sagafi, who is a, an as- associate professor of philosophy at the University of Memphis. Um, and we're here today talking with him about his book, published through the State University of New York Press, titled The World After the End of the World, A Spectro-Poetics. Welcome, Kaz. Thank you, Britt. Happy to be here. It's it's great to have you here today. Um, as I mentioned when we were talking before we started recording, I love this book. It was so great to read. Um, a lot of really thought-provoking questions, and we'll get into them. Um, but my first question is, you know, can you give us a little bit of your intellectual background as well as how you came to thinking about the questions that led you to writing this book? Um, well. That requires a long answer. I will try to be brief. Um, I did my studies um, in philosophy, in continental philosophy, at uh, at DePaul University in Chicago. Um, uh, it was there that I worked with uh, Michael Nass, who's a, a translator and uh, an expert on the works of Derrida. Um, I joined the University of Memphis after holding several other jobs. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I teach at a university at a, in a department that is a pluralist department. Uh, I don't know if that really makes much sense in terms of uh, theory or comparative literature. Uh, philosophy departments uh, tend to have uh, a certain sense of being able to uh, bring together different uh, branches of thought. And I happen to uh, have simply worked in continental philosophy. I have no background in analytic philosophy, which for me, it puts me at a disadvantage uh, where I teach. Um, I have always been interested in Derrida's work. Um, I did my dissertation on Derrida I was very lucky to be able to attend Derrida's seminar in Paris. Um, and I, since, since then, or even before then, I have been interested in his work. So I did my first book uh, on the notion of apparitions, uh, looking at this thing that he had been thinking about having to do with specters. And I tried to explain what, that might mean, and also what it might mean for a philosopher to think about those things. And by philosopher, I mean uh, a person in my position, because I do not simply consider Derrida as a philosopher. Um, He is beyond that, I would say. Um, So that is my background, uh, simply put. Um, How I got to this book... um, that's a difficult uh, uh, question to answer. I these um, so the chapters uh, that the book contains, um, I have been thinking about. I had been thinking about for a long time, uh, but unfortunately, as it's um, evident uh, when you look at the beginning of the book, um, this uh, had to do with the fact that um, my wife, who was my partner. Uh, who was my wife for 25 years, and I actually went to um, undergraduate school with, and graduate school, passed away um, very suddenly. And it not only um, plunged me into mourning, it made me, it forced me, as I say, to think about uh, what does, how do we understand death, uh, thinking about Derrida's work, what has he said about death. How do we come to terms with this notion? And of course, um, I happened to have as my background um, a work that I had 
been working on helping um, two of my professors when I was in graduate school, which was entirely on the, the work of mourning. So I had unfortunately had uh, an intellectual back- background in this topic. Um, and when the time for actual mourning, of course, what, as far as Derrida is concerned, one is mourning before a death. Um, when it came to my mourning, let's put it that way, um, I was struggling to not only think about that that death, but also to find out what I could say about it. So this is how the book came about. Um, I think that's what I can say. <laughs> okay, well, you bring up a few things that I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about, um, but... I want to start by by asking a few questions about maybe some basic guidelines or or thoughts that you're, how we might structure this interview, which on the which you bring out in the text. Um, so my first question is related to the title, and you it's called "The World After the End of the World." Yeah, and I think the two main um, points in that are world and end, and I think that what you're doing with this, as well as what Derrida is doing with this is troubling what we might think of as end and what we might think of as world. Um, can you give us maybe just a, a brief way of thinking about how to, of the words world and end um, and how they're not actually, you know, like the word world in Derrida's, he actually said like, maybe there's not a world. There's not a world or the world. What does that right. mean? Um, uh, one of the ways that I try to do this is, to investigate um, philosophically, looking back to the uh, very beginnings of, of thought, of Greek thought, um, to see what we have understood in the European world, um, which is the inheritance for continental philosophy generally, how have we understood the notion of world? And obviously we have, there have been many different worlds uh, designating uh, the notion of world for us now. Um, so a, a historical search allowed me to look at uh, how have we understood the, the notion of the world, uh, philosophically speaking. Um, then I also looked at how Derrida uh, discusses the notion of world. Um, and interestingly, I started really at the end of his uh toward the end of his writing rather than from the very beginning. Um, he had written uh, a, a, an introduction preface to a, a text that was only published in French. Uh, it was supposed to be the, the French version of an English book that came out uh, called The Work of Mourning. Uh, the French text has not been completely translated uh, into English. And what Derrida says in the uh, introduction to this book is very um, very intriguing because um, he he has uh, Jean Luc Nancy uh, involved uh, because he is trying to think out think about the notion of world and the end of the world and he is saying that the notion of the end of the world as we have understood it, let's say, in the Christian West or however you, European West, however you want to understand this, uh, means that uh, there is a place that we live in uh, and exist in. It's called the world. And when someone dies, someone in the world has died. Uh, and this continues the very thought of the world as we have understood it. What Derrida says, and he had been doing so in his l- very late writings, I'm, I'm suggesting, that he was really uh, thinking about the notion of world. Not the world, but just world. And he was linking it to the question of the other and the other's death. So very similarly, if I can say it in this way, um, the way Levinas talks about the other, for example, and he only mentions uh, in his 
early writings, uh, in his first major writing, uh, Totality and Infinity, he's just talking about the other. Uh, and this involves all kinds of complications in the terms of the translation of whatever word that Levinas is using. But uh, my point w w is that what Derrida is doing is he is thinking anew this, this notion of world. And he links it to the death of the other. And he says that the world, not a world, ends when the other dies. Well, naturally, this means there will be many ends. Uh, there won't be just one end. Um, and, of course, end is a complicated term in philosophy, too. Uh, it, it means... Um, it can mean what is the goal of something, what is the end of something, as well as here being uh, uh, the end, the world is la fin, which is pretty much the same thing as we would translate uh, as uh, the end. Um, what I'm suggesting is that with the thought of the death of the other, Derrida is forced to rethink uh, what he has, what has been called world in the entire tradition of uh, thought, in Western thought. Um, and I, this is a kind of a controversial thought. I don't know if too many people who are Derrida experts totally agree with this. Um, because the, the notion of the world and the notion of globalization uh, or as it's been translated, worldwideization is prevalent all over Derrida's later work. So he does discuss the notion of world. What I'm suggesting is that he is working with uh, a notion that we all understand to mean world. But toward the end, uh, the question of death of the other, mourning, etc., force him to bring him to. Uh, rethink this notion of, of the world. So the reason why I'm saying this is that he, he titles uh, what was in English called the work of mourning. He decides to call it uh, chaque fois unique, la fin du monde. So each time unique, the end of the world. And one is forced to think, well, what does this mean? What does what is he working toward? This is a book that collects Derrida's essays, uh, eulogies, you could say, about his friends and colleagues uh, over many years. Uh, so each of these deaths forced the reader to think about death and mourning. And now Derrida trying to bring this, uh, these essays together and publish them in French. Uh, Michael Nass and Pascal Ambrot had edited it in, in, in English. Um, I, I'm thinking that it made him or forced him to think about all of these deaths and how does one bring these deaths together and should one bring those deaths together? If each death to a certain extent, is very singular, is singular, then should they be collected? Uh, should they be put together? And what does it mean to put them together? As he is suggesting that each time death is unique, and it means the end of the world, each death. Um, so for me, this was extremely provocative. And, of course, um, with Plachette's death, I had to really think about this and to see what it could possibly mean and how I would be able to um, make anything of it by looking at all the things that he has said about death and what happens after death, if there is such a thing. Um, what is there an afterlife? And of course, then I had to um, 
deal with the question of resurrection, which is a notion that Jean-Luc Nancy has uh, been thinking about uh, and which Derrida has contested. Um, and he says in that preface that uh, there is no, no such thing as resurrection. Uh, death spells the end of the world. Sorry, this is a long-winded answer. No, I think it's great, and it, it brings us to a lot of what we'll we'll end up talking about. And I want to move from there to where Der- where you begin with Derrida, um, or close to the beginning at least, um, which is his reading um, of Paul Celan's Große Ruhende Vilbang, which is um, Great Glowing Vault, and the last um, the last sentence or the last line in that poem is, um, I'll read it in, in English and then in German. Um, so the last line is, the world is gone, I must carry you. And that is, die Welt ist fort, ich muss dich tragen. Um, and these two, these two sentences, which, or these two um, clauses are separated by a comma. They're not, they're, they're totally together. There's just a, a small splice between them. Um, can you talk about how you and Derrida are approaching the sentence, especially in relation to how the being gone of the earth um, or the world, Istfot, how that relates to the imperative, the the need to carry or the 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 promise to carry, that I must. It's not I am, it's not in the present or present indicative, it's I'm yes. going to have to do this. Yes, it's a duty, uh, Derrida says. It's my duty. Um, first of all, Derrida was obsessed with this line from Celan, and obviously he was um, Celan was his colleague, and he read Celan over many many years. But this particular line uh, really interests him, and he writes about it in different contexts and in different places. Um, what he tries to do, um, the way I understand it, is that he he reinterprets what we call divelt. So the world, uh, not is, it is not the world that we have understood as uh, this globe, uh, this place that we all live in, um, that we can look at uh, synoptically uh, using uh, a satellite. And so that's how we understand the world. Uh, Derrida is linking this notion of world and thinking it differently with the, the, the next clause that is the end of the world. And the end of the world, as I try to explain, is not the way it's been understood, certainly in America, uh, as a kind of apocalyptic, biblical thing that everyone is fearful of that the world is going to end. Um, he is suggesting that the end of the world is actually related to death of the other. And the de- it is the death of the other that spells what he calls the end of the world. And this means that when every other dies, the world ends. Now, he says, not the world as we understand it, uh, but as he is thinking it. Um, I'm not sure if this has been really noticed or worked on as much as it ought to be, or certainly the way it affected me. Um, so it, he uses Celan to, um, to to try to explain uh, what the uh, the death of the other spells. It spells uh, the because, uh, as I try to explain. The way he's understanding what he is calling the other, the other stands on a ground. Every other stands on a ground. When the other dies, the ground founders, uh, they do not stand on a ground anymore. They fall into the abyss. Um, there is no ground to uh, buttress their uh, stance in this world. Uh, that indicates for Derrida that uh, what we understand as the world, 
which is a kind of foundation that we all stand on, uh, the ground upon which we stand, vanishes. And it is the death of every, well, yeah, the other, every other that causes death. And, and causes us to rethink what we mean by the world. Therefore, we need to, uh, I guess um, the implication would be that we need to think the world not in terms of a globe, not in terms of a uh, wide expanse, the way that uh, we have thought about it in terms of the cosmos and all that stuff, but he's relating it, he's making it much more singular and you could say smaller because he's linking it to the other. I don't know if that makes sense. So I'm really, I'm, yeah, it does. I'm really, I was very interested by this, um, this relationship to the other that is founded on death and this duty to the other. And um, you bring up um, one of my favorite texts of Derrida's, The Politics of Friendship, um, which in it, he describes how, the kernel of a friendship is the knowledge, implicit or explicit, that one of you will live on beyond the other, and you will have to bear their name. You will have to speak um, for them or on behalf of them. And I think, I can't remember which um, eulogy or essay it is in the work of mourning, but he he's asking about whether or not he, he can speak for the other, or how that might happen, if he's eclipsing them or if, he's, if he has the, the ability to. Um, so I'm wondering, can you can you say more about how this relationship of philia or of friendship relates to death and how this, perhaps something that we never want to think about actually lies at the origin. So the end is the beginning, in fact. Right. Um, yes. Uh, the You bring up the notion of friendship. Uh, he says the same thing about mourning, too. So... Uh, my relationship to the other begins with the fact that I'm not sure if I would call it a knowledge, but I am aware that the other will die. One of us will die before the other. And that constitutes uh, the relationship of friendship, the relationship, uh, I mean, love, you could say, anything like that, um, with, with the fact uh, that one of us will have to mourn the other one. Um, and one of us will have to see the other go. Therefore, this constitutes really the, uh, the, the major aspect of the relationship to the other uh, is, is related to the question of death. Uh, so previously we have said that human beings are mortal. We are aware of our mortality and all, all of that. But Derrida singularizes this, uh, and, and it's interesting. It's singular, and but it's repeatable with every death. Um, so it's not just one death, but every relation uh, with the other means that one of us will die first. And my job, my duty, will be to mourn this friend. Um, even if I don't, or, I mean... I, he says, I already mourn the friend before their death because it's a structural thing that he's thinking. But um, I actually do have to mourn their death as well. Um, it is what death causes uh, and brings about. And this forms the basic of, basics of the relationship to, to the other. For Derrida, and he want he will repeat this that this is structural. He's not being melancholic or anything like that. Death is part and parcel of the relationship to the other. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to move into a, a different discussion that that also employs terms that we'll have to think through or, or parcel out. Um, and I'm thinking of like the the concept of survival, especially in as we think of that as a relationship to otherness. Um, so for example, in, you know, uh, obituaries, they'll name the, the deceased and then say, they are survived by. Survived by yes. um, so I'm wondering, so can you talk about how 
so you're thinking about survival in relation to Derrida. And I think also that we need to make the distinction that you draw out in this, that Derrida and others draw out the difference between um, survivance yes. and, uh, and survie, um, so the different types of survival and what each one implies. Uh, you've asked all, you ask all the tough questions, Britt. Uh, this is a difficult question. Um, I have actually sat before Jeff Bennington, who translated uh, The Beast and the Sovereign, and he pronounces it, and I was first uh, very interested to find out, he pronounces it like it's an English word, survivance. That's how he provi- uh, pronounces it. So he has turned it into an English word rather than, you know, fancy sounding French word. Um, but survivance is different from survival. The survival that you mentioned, for example, in obituaries, they say that so-and-so is survived by uh, spouse, children, etc. cetera. Uh, they live on after him or her, and this person is dead. Um, what Derrida calls survivance uh, tries to rethink the relationship between life and death. And he says that what he's calling survivance makes possible the distinction between life and death. So um, he has, uh, Derrida was always thinking about the relationship between life and death from very early on. And very recently, um, a seminar was published uh, in French and English called Life Death, in which he's trying to think the relationship of life death by, by bringing these two words together, not separating them with a hyphen or a slash or anything like that. So he wants to think what kind of connection uh, do life and death have with each other? And he has always contended that uh, life is riven with death. It's not that death just comes after life. And he also wants to think this notion of death as if there is, as if it is haunted by a certain kind of liveliness or the notion of life. So they're not opposites, uh, as he has always done with all kinds of uh, binary distinctions. Um, so for him, survivance is not exactly what we call survival. Uh, And in previous texts where he has written on this and he had uh, spelled this word, uh, he wrote about survival as survie, but the sur was um, hyphenated by the. So on life, uh, in, in English, it's been translated as living on, but I think it's more than living on this notion of survivance that he's thinking about. But if I could simplify it, um, it's a natural question that human beings have thought about people who die. What happens to them? Where do they go? Do they live on or not? And of course, uh, religions are based on uh, this notion of afterlife. And of course, Christianity that forms really uh, a major basis of European thought uh, has a thought of the afterlife in which the you know the dead are not just dead um, and they go on and in fact the better life is not on earth uh, uh, and Nietzsche criticized this um, is elsewhere is elsewhere so what I had to think about is that, okay, how does one think about this survival without necessarily being religious, Christian, um, believing in the fact that there is some other world that we all go to after we die? That would be too simple. So surely that is not what Derrida is thinking about. But what he's thinking about is not so easy to delineate to figure out, because in uh, as many people have quoted, uh, the, uh, the thing that he wrote, uh, the message that he wrote for his son to read uh, out loud uh, at his funeral, 
uh, is very interesting. He, he talks about everyone. Uh, he urges everyone to uh, not be cheerful. Let's, I'm just summarizing it. But he, at the end, kind of says, like, I'll be smiling at you from wherever I am. And this is not clear. This is uh, mysterious. What does he mean by that? Uh, does he? Uh, did he believe in an afterlife? Did he? All of these things that have led to all kinds of discussions, and some people say I myself have said that you know, yeah, there's no resurrection. Derrida doesn't believe in a resurrection. He doesn't, even though Jean Nancy does. But uh, what I've just read, uh, what I just told you about, uh, what was read out at his funeral, does that indicate that he believes? In an afterlife, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's it's not a um, cut and dry uh, thing that we can say. Well, yes, he did or he didn't, or it was or it wasn't. It's not like that, which pushes the reader to think about even further what he said about life death, uh, the relationship between life death. Uh, mm-hmm that he does really fabulously in this life-death seminar, and in which he reads not, he starts with Hegel, uh, but then he reads um, famous uh, French uh, theorists of biology who have talked about the notion of the living. And he analyzes these things to see what is meant by life and the living. I think that's about as much as I can say. I'm glad you bring up. <laughs> I'm glad you bring up um, Derrida's own death because it was. Um, I mean, it was it was 2008, right? Around then, it, it was before um, then. 2000. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just. I guess. But um, four. 2004. Yes. Okay. Okay. So a multiple. Eight is a multiple of four. There we go. Um, so I'm I'm interested in in this and. You bring up, I mean, many times throughout the book, um, Derrida's text, Aporias, which is kind of where he he talks a lot about his own death. Um, and it's he knows it's coming. And I think I think it's interesting to get this a philosopher if or a theorist's um his own thoughts on his own death, because I there's that relationship of philosophy to death that is inherent in it. Um so you have like Plato and Phaedo talking about, um, you know, philosophy is learning how to die. Um, or, um, I don't know, I think we we want to think about philosophy as learning how to live, but if, I mean, this might sound a little too Freudian, but if the goal or end of every life is death, then it is also learning how to die and how to live, how to die properly. Um, so I'm wondering if you, if you can talk about how maybe this relationship between philosophy and death and what Derrida is adding to this conversation, perhaps in a way of saying there's something conciliatory about it. There's, you say like, you don't have to cry. Um, how does that relate to maybe care us carrying on Derrida's legacy or us carrying on Derrida's thinking or us just carrying on thinking at all? Um, I will try to take on, uh, this is a tough question, all of them. Uh, so I'll just uh, try to respond to the beginning uh, of the, the questions that you asked me. I think philosophy, and this is Derrida's belief too, I'm sure, um, is and calls itself a preparation for death. So um, like Montaigne said, uh, uh, repeating the things that uh, Plato had said, and in fact, it's been part of the tradition that... Um, Life is a practice and preparation for death. Uh, and at the same time, it is, if you look at someone like Hegel, it is death that gives power and energy to philosophy. You can say that it motors it. It is the engine. So if you, look, if you read anything by Hegel, Hegel, the negativity of death, uh, propels the dialectic. So for, for Hegel uh, and after him, death has been a very important concept. 
So uh, as Heidegger says, we are being toward beings toward death. Uh, it, it is death that individualizes uh, Dasein um, because we are aware of an intimate relationship to death. So Derrida is aware of this, uh, obviously. And death is intimately related to life. But what he wants to contest is the power, I would say, uh, the negative power that death is supposed to give uh, to the living uh, and, I guess, to philosophy. It, it enables uh, philosophy to go on, this power of negativity of death. Uh, for Hegel, uh, negativity was, uh, was death. They, they, they were synonymous. So with that, uh, not only did Hegel not stop, he, he went on. Because it allows the dialectic to, to function. This is, you know, Derrida has argued this from very early on, um, for example, in Glaw uh, and elsewhere, uh, even before that. Um, so, um, sorry, I forgot. You, I tried to note all of your questions, but you had several. Um, uh, so, philosophy is a preparation for death. That's, that's been what we are supposed to do. So from Cicero, from all, all philosophers, I mean, um, there's a fascinating thing that, um, about the uh, brevity of life that uh, Seneca, Cicero, etc. have said that our job is to prepare uh, for death by not spending on uh, stuff that's useless, uh, not giving too much to friends, but concentrating on one's own tasks and the things that one has to do. Um, and I think Derrida thinks that this notion of death allows a certain view of philosophy to continue. And um, because it's the opposite of life and uh, what we are supposed to celebrate, we, and we always do, and this is not philosophical, but in, in our country, there is politically always a celebration of life as opposed to death. So uh, questions of abortion, questions of, there are a variety of uh, political uh, discourses that have to do with the a celebration of life. Um, one of the things that I really do not like is when you go to uh, someone's memorial session Without asking you, they call it a celebration of life. And this is utterly Christian because um, so-and-so, in my case, my wife has died. What is the celebration about? I am not celebrating. She died. She died all of a sudden. So this is, in a way, it's bogus, but ultimately Christian to say, that um, uh, human life is to be celebrated, let's not worry too much about death uh, because that's negative. As all kids will tell me, uh, that why are you so negative uh, about you know, death? It, we are supposed to celebrate the life of the human being. Therefore, we're not supposed to uh, be down about it at all. And the question of uh, mourning, uh, culturally, in our culture, is very vexed because um, I have personally ha have had to deal with it differently from, let's say, theoretically, which I have also have dealt with. Um, everyone is concerned, why are you so unhappy and why don't you get better soon? As if you are somehow uh, upsetting them by being in mourning. And you should be over it. And they, then they quote you as if you don't realize. They quote you Freud. Uh, not that they quote Freud, but Freud said that, you know, the process is supposed to end after a certain time. He doesn't say why or how, but it ends. Therefore, uh, mourning is over after a period of time when we go back to life, to the concerns of life. 
And this, I don't think Americans know, generally speaking, whether they're being Freudian or not, but they certainly believe in that. And that uh, the amount of time that they allow someone to mourn has lessened and lessened. So you're supposed to like really quickly get to it. Uh, go back to life. Be happy. Um, and I think this is part of the philosophical Christian roots, uh, you know, philosophy differently going back all the way to Plato, Montaigne, Hegel, all of, literally all of uh, Christian uh, Western philosophy. But now you add Christianity to it, which entered philosophy from the Middle Ages, um, where it is forbidden to mourn, forbidden to mourn for a long time, uh, because it's just negative. Um, you have to move on quickly uh, and celebrate life. And life is the opposite of death. Sorry, I've talked too much, but <laughs> this is has to do with my own personal experience, which has kind of affected the things that I have also uh, written uh, or thought about. Yeah, no, I, that was a great answer. And I think it gets us, it makes me think in several different directions. Um, I think most proximate right now would be the question of mourning um, and how, how that's a duty. And I think we touched on this earlier about how you, it's, there's a primary or a primordial mourning in every relationship. But I, you talk about the, um, the time of mourning um, later in the book. And I'm wondering, can you, can you say more about what it means to be um, the time of mourning as the time of survival um, and how these two operate together and how, what might it mean to mourn in a Derridian way rather than, you know, just get over, get, get over it. How can mourning operate to, to really fashion how we have relations with others? Well, uh, to just get to the last question, I think he would say something like mourning is intricately involved in all relationships with others, um, family members, loved ones, uh, partners, however you want to look at this. Um, it is, you cannot do without it uh, because one of the two of us will die first. And that is part and parcel of all relationships. And this is not necessarily being mournful or negative or whatever, but he wants to say this is, the if you want to say it this way, this is the reality of all, all um, relationships, all ties, all bonds involve uh, the awareness that one of us won't, won't be around uh, and we won't be able to see the other one forever. Uh, so this uh, injects the question of death, which some philosophers uh, have said uh, with the question of finitude and mortality, they have said that we die, um, accept it. Uh, so there are certain readings in, in philosophy in particular uh, after Nietzsche or, or Heidegger or it, in particular, the what they call the existentialists, they all argue that this is it. This is the only earth, the only world that we know. We die, get over it. There's nothing after it. I wanted to ask, is this the same thing that Derrida thinks? And certainly, well, he's not an existentialist. Um, and I don't really think he thinks that death and life are opposed. And this forces us to think, so then how does he think of death? Uh, yes, um, as far as uh, our Christian background in, in philosophy, yes, the soul, since Plato, the soul lives on, the body dies. Um, therefore, there is a part of us that is out there somewhere, possibly in heaven if you're a Christian. Um, or other religions also. Uh, but uh, I'm sure that's not what Derrida's thinking. So what is he thinking then? 
Um, and I did not, and I, I don't think I have a, a straight answer to give you, but you brought up the question of survivance uh, and what happens when death occurs. Uh, when we say survival, uh, we either refer to the people who have survived the death of a loved one, or maybe religiously, philosophically, we say that the, uh, this, the person who has died survives elsewhere, in another world. Now, if you don't believe in another world, uh, that makes things difficult for you. Um, so I, what I think is Derrida has pushed all of these thoughts uh, not saying that there is another location or another place, even though I do think he is thinking this. And uh, I try to show that uh, by uh, appealing to Freud, he is thinking about a certain topos in which the dead are. But we have no access to it because... Um, he talks about the unconscious and consciousness, both of them having to do with the living and the time of the living. Therefore, where a dead person might be, there is no time and there is no consciousness. But what he's hinting toward, I am very interested in, and I think... Uh, Jean-Luc Nancy also picks up on this in his later thought. He does write certain things. Uh, of course, he's going a direction that I don't think Derrida would go. Uh, but he is wondering if there is such a thing as a survival. Although survival, what do we mean by it? Um, does the body survive? Does the soul survive? What survives? Nancy says there are molecules that are out there. Uh, I mean, one has to really think this through. Uh, but he, he is uh, pushing this thought as much as he can. Um, I don't think, as I said, I don't think Derrida believes this. Um, but one would have to say, if there is a thinker who has been pushing the limits of death and life and constantly, uh, pervasively, thinking about the limits of life and death, surely the notion of the limit has, ha, well, he has certainly rethought it. And the limit does not mean something comes to a stop or an end. And certainly for Heidegger, it didn't. Um, so in Aporia's uh, or Aporia's, uh, Derrida is thinking that the whole notion of limit what does a limit mean? Uh, because death has traditionally always been seen as a limit. So life comes to an end, that's the limit. He asks in that text, is death an end? Is death a limit? An end, you know, uh, la fin in both senses of the goal or um, the finality of death. Uh, so I have more questions than answers. Um, I have tried uh, to see what I can suggest, but it is not very clear or it is not said. Um, how would I say it? Uh, I, I don't think Derrida has come out and uttered and said, here's, this is what I believe on this, on this notion. I don't think he's done that. Uh, and maybe he shouldn't have done that anyway. It doesn't make any sense to his way of thinking. Uh, but there are enough um, hints that a reader can follow and to see where it might lead them, uh, where they can push things, things that have been fully understood and accepted in all of Western thought and Western religions. So. They have questioned death, obviously. It's part and parcel of everything that forms a religion or a thought. But I don't think Derrida accepts those things that have been accepted. So I, miss I think I, I have questions? another question, and this one's yeah. large. Oh No, no. I, you got me to another question. And okay. this one, 
I mean, it's a big one. Um, and I think it kind of undergirds, it might be the, one of the, the basic tenets of the book or of something that you're trying to get at. And you, I think of it because you bring up, you say life and death in Derrida are not as opposed. Um, he doesn't speak on it directly. He kind of, he he doesn't say this is what I think. He right. he dances he around does. and he asks yeah. a lot. He doesn't dance around. Yeah. He moves around. Yes. Um. And so you say maybe he shouldn't have said this because that it wouldn't have been part of his thinking. And I I want to get to that question of his thinking and ask, you know how how is deconstruction related to the questioning of death and maybe why why does it open itself up so much to this question and these these questions um and i'm thinking especially because of it coming out of heidegger destruction and heidegger's being towards death and i mean i don't think i I don't want to say he was obsessed with death but his the whole project of heidegger is to get us to say you know like you have to be constantly aware of your own death and i think what deconstruction does in a lot of ways is takes things to the impasse to the aporia which Derrida does connect to death. Um, so what? how are you seeing deconstruction as maybe approximately related to the question of death or even maybe even providing more answers than anything else has? Well, this is a tough question. Big question. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's not really easy to answer. From the very beginning of his writing, uh, Derrida has thought about the relationship. Uh, he... Death has been mentioned throughout, even uh, from the very beginning of his writings on Husserl. Um, so uh, by death, he has meant different things that I have tried to explore in one of my chapters uh, in the book. Uh, he equates it with the notion of disappearance, uh, not simply uh, death of a human being, but the, the general notion or concept of death fully aware that for Hegel and Heidegger, uh, death played a very important role in their thought and in their philosophy. And as someone who is an inheritor of that tradition, obviously death for him um, is an important notion. But he doesn't uh, take it up in the same way as uh, Hegel and Heidegger do. He's obviously somewhat influenced by Levinas's writings on death, uh, which question uh, Heidegger's question, um, notion of death. And in particular, uh, going to uh, what I said about my book, it is Levinas who uh, wants to move Heidegger away from the death of Dasein, my death, my own death, to the other's death and make it more important or more primordial, you can say, uh, than my death. So wants to take um, the emphasis away from me, the I, to that of the other. But death as a concept is bound up with uh, deconstructive thought. Uh, Derrida mentions death pretty much everywhere, but they have different meanings, like they are often structural terms. Uh, they are, you could say, neutral. They don't have to do with the death of an individual. You can call it a concept, but Derrida really doesn't have concepts. But something like that. Uh, so uh, a disappearance, uh, um, something not being there. I, I you know, I, I, I'm not really, it's difficult to kind of improvise on the thought of death. Uh, but something like that. So it's part and parcel of and intricately related to all the um, all the things that you know Rodolphe Gachet has named infrastructures. Death is bound up. So the relationship to the other and other does not necessarily mean a human being, but and a kind of otherness or alterity. Uh, the relationship to death. Uh, so deconstruction is bound up uh, with these things. Uh, you cannot you cannot think deconstruction without uh, a relation to the other uh, relationship to death. Uh, 
and of course time. So structurally in that way, uh, deconstruction is related to the question of death from the very beginning. Um, you, you mentioned aporias in which uh, Derrida uh, is questioning how death has been taken up uh, sociologically, culturally, uh, and philosophically in the West. So he looks at some famous uh, French writers on the cultural notion of death. But then he also goes to Heidegger toward the latter part of the text, where he wants to question uh, what is called uh, how mortality has been understood. And I think this, what I, what I called existentialist uh, just previously, of course, someone like Sartre and Beauvoir and other people, even Camus, um, were influenced by Heidegger and Heidegger's emphasis on the question of death. The way that this has been taken up, whether this is what Heidegger is saying or not, is that death constitutes an end for life. Uh, it's the termination of life. Because we are beings towards, toward death, we know death is coming, and it motivates all actions of Dasein. Clearly, what Derrida is looking at, first culturally, um, anthropologically, he wants to assess what have we understood as death in our culture, in Western culture. Then he goes to Heidegger and he tries to push uh, this notion of being toward death and to see whether death is an end, a finality, and then if it's not, then what does that mean? What does that mean for death not to be an end? I mean, I don't know what you want to call it, but all of uh, 20th century philosophy is based on the fact that we are death-bound. Uh, we are bound for death, we die, and that's it. But I don't think that is what Derrida thinks. And this is a large question and a difficult question. I don't think he ever comes out and says, okay, yeah, you die, that's it. So uh, what philosophy has said, well, yes, you die, so celebrate life, uh, make the best of it, make the best of every moment, uh, death will come soon. Therefore, you know, it should motivate your existence and being and your enjoyment because death will happen. It is an end. Now, if Derrida is saying, no, death is not quite an end, then what does that mean? And this, uh, you asked about the construction and the question of death. So if um, death has been the motor behind Hegelian thought and what has motivated uh, Heideggerian thought, how does it uh, function in Derridian thought? Well, then we have to come out and say, well, what is death for Derrida? And that's not an easy question to answer. I really don't think it's, it's that simple. And it really does take, like, what I've tried to do is in a very short chapter, kind of elusive chapter, uh, which I'm not too happy about, uh, I don't really say much. I just elusively point toward uh, parts in Derrida's books in which he has talked about death. So his uh, book on Freud, uh, uh, even uh, down uh, as recently as what he has written on Hélène Sixou, on the question of life. Um, and a careful reader will find out that he never comes out and says, or um, he never puts his foot down and says, this is, we are mortal, we die. That's not, that's not the message that he gives us. So you're supposed to think, then what? Then what? What are we supposed to think? Uh, we can't think that we go to heaven. We can't go that we, there is some other location that, we are transported to, but we can't think that we're going to rot and that's it, which is really, to be honest, that's the philosophical response. If you were to pull uh, contemporary philosophers, they will all kind of say that, that that's it, we die, 
we rot. There's no other, there's nothing after that. I don't think that's what Derrida says. So it's my suspicion that this needs to be pushed and explored further. Uh, but I, I don't have, don't have answers. <laughs> I think that's, that's perfect. I don't think, you don't have the answers, Derrida doesn't have the answers, but I think we're getting to the idea that maybe we, we won't have answers and our lack of answer is the answer. <laughs> right, um, yes. Well, I, I have one final question. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, if you want to say something else, go ahead. Well, no, I don't think he's going to pronounce uh, this is my final answer about the question of death. He would. This does not sound very Derridian. He would never do that. Um, but he he pushes uh, and reads all the texts in the West, whether they are scientific, whether they're philosophical, to see what we have said about life and death. And for example, toward the end of his life, he wrote uh, in appreciation of Ellen Sixou about life. He wrote a lot about life. And you think, wow, is this the same person who in the late 1960s was saying stuff about death all the time? Uh, so, yeah, they're not opposites. Uh, he doesn't think of them as opposites. But even though he aff greatly affirms Ellen Sixou, he doesn't quite come out and say, yeah, I'm all for life. He doesn't say that. Well, I have one final question, um, and that is, what are you thinking about now? Um, what's, do you have anything already in the pipeline? Do you have anything on the horizon or, or what's occupying your mind? Um, uh, my, your questions and my attempt at answers make, have made me think that maybe I should think further about this stuff and write more on it. But at the moment, I'm somewhat exhausted with that topic. Uh, I have several things that I have had to do. Um, couple of projects uh, that I uh, owe a publisher because um, I was involved with uh, Plachette, my wife, um, in trying to work on both of them. One book we were supposed to write together, uh, which is on the notion of remains, um, uh, le reste, in Derrida's work. And, trying to figure out what this word means in Derrida's corpus. But interestingly, this is also based on an essay, that a late essay that Derrida wrote uh, that Plachette, Diarmet, and myself, we've tried to, we've translated and will appear in this, in this book that, strangely enough, is on uh, Indian Vedic thought and it's has to do with the remains of food uh the remains in other words leftovers and the, the remains of human beings in in vedic thought so derrida explores uh something that he, i think he rarely ever did like another culture uh another culture in this way uh so I have written since Plachette no longer is here to contribute chapters, which she was planning to do so. I have written several chapters and I, I'm going to include the translation that we both did in this book that's going to be called Remains, Jacques Derrida. Um, that's one project. The other project, also um, initiated by Plachette, uh, who thought about the idea um, are two volumes of Derrida's essays that have not been um, translated or published in English. So it's a collection of something like 40, um, 20, 20 odd essays or more. It, the, the number has not been determined. So they have been translated by several hands, some of them expert Derrida translators, some of them uh, young people who are very interested. And this is going to be a collection that's called Thinking What Comes and will come out in two volumes, uh, hopefully in 2022. 
So that's what I've been working on. But there's more in the back of my head that I am thinking about. As there always is. Well, those sound exciting. Um, and as a Derrida fan, I'm, I'll be excited to get my hands on those. Um, <laughs> and we can have you back on and we can talk about more Derrida. Well, that would be very kind. I would love that. But uh, you know how publishing, uh, the publishing industry is. You hope that yes. it will come out, but you just <laughs> never know for sure. Uh, these translations were supposed to yeah. come out earlier, but they haven't yet. So, Well, maybe we can do a, a an underground reading. <laughs> um, well, they're in French. I guess I can read them in French. But I'm, I'd be excited to see them in English. Yes, I think um, they, uh, you know, well, this was... it's, they've been nicely translated. People have worked hard on it. And uh, Jeff Bennington, who is my co-editor, I am honored to have him as my co-editor, is checking all the translations. So uh, they ought to be good. Well, I'm excited. Um, and this was a great interview. I think you've, you've brought up a lot of things for me and for the listeners to think about. And I, I want to thank you for talking with me today. Thank you very much, Britt. I really appreciate uh, your concern and uh, you inviting me to say a few things about my work. No problem. It was, it was an honor. It was a great opportunity. So once again, this was Kaz Sagafi um, talking about his book, The World After the End of the World. Um, thank you, Kaz. Thank you, Britt. This was, or I am... <laughs> Your host, Britt, um, for the New Books channel, um, the network or the New Books Network podcast. Until next time, thank you. Mm-hmm.